0: Good evening, Village Church. Happy New Year. My name is Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. So wonderful to be starting off this new year with you on the very first day of the year. It is my great privilege to open up God's Word with you tonight. So if you do have a Bible open in front of you, please do keep it open to that first chapter there of 1 Peter. Otherwise, why not join with me in prayer? we will ask for God's help in understanding him and his word, uh, that we might grow more in love with him tonight. All right, please join with me in prayer. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the gift of your son Jesus, and we ask that right now, through his Holy Spirit, you'd be taking your word and working it deep into our hearts, that we might better love you with all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. We pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Can okay, I just say, how good is it living in Australia? <laughs> how much even better is it living in a place like Southeast Queensland, which is beautiful one day, perfect the next? I think my mom agrees. After uh, Christmas picnic, mom finished up her duties on the juice table uh, at the community picnic. We headed up the sunny coast for a couple of nights away. And here's, here's a typical typical day on holiday in Queensland. It began with sleeping in. Waking up and gazing over the ocean. Wandering down to the only cafe that was still singing coffees. Going outside and exploring along the beach. Then making our way back home and cooking dinner. Watching a movie on the telly. Winding down with a book. And getting a good night's rest. It's just beautiful. I'm really grateful to God for such memories. But there's also a downside to living in such a wonderful place as Brisbane. Brisbane. Because sometimes living in a city like this really does make it easy to lose sight of what God's calling me or calling us to do in this world. So, for, for example, just imagine for a moment growing up like the majority of our brothers and sisters around the world. All right, so those who perhaps fall asleep, wondering whether someone's going to be kicking in their front door and dragging them off to prison, having to forcibly leave behind all of your food, clothing, medicine, money, even family just for owning the name of Jesus. How did you respond? Because that's the world that Peter lives in. The guy who wrote this part of God's Word. The churches who passed around his letter are Christians who have been forcibly relocated. We see that in the first verse. Foreigners, exiles, scattered people, facing all sorts of trials and grief, all because of the name of Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian in the majority world, this is something you face daily. Every day you need to wake up, you need to make the call to follow Jesus, and then live with the consequences of that. And so for them, Peter's letter is incredibly timely. But it's not as if Peter's letter has nothing to say to us living in the West, even in a city like Brisbane, because at some level, we all face... That same temptation to deny Christ daily. Oh, It's it's, it's going to look different, of course. The world isn't going to come at us with sticks and stones. But it does hold out little treats for us. Daily bribes that tempt us to put comfort and pleasure above pain and suffering for the gospel. Opportunities to pull away from Christ. To compromise our faith. And... Because it comes to us so subtly, it's so, so easy for us not to count the cost, to avoid living with the consequences of following Jesus. So that's why we're going to spend these first few weeks here at the start of the year, diving deep into the first two chapters of Peter's first letter. Why? Because at the start of this new year together, we want to train ourselves as a church how to live as God's people in a world that's ultimately not our home. And that's what Peter's letter does for us. This gift of God's word, it teaches us how to respond to suffering, how to grow as Christians, how to relate to one another in love, all within the context of living in a world that we're not not meant to become too comfortable with. Living in this sort of in-between. So here's where Peter begins. He begins his letter by setting up what it means to be God's chosen people living in exile while we wait for Christ to return. what it means to be God's chosen people living in exile while we wait for Christ to return. So what does he say to those who find themselves living as strangers in a strange land? Well, he first puts ink to paper to say, hey, take a look at all that God's done for you. All right, so at the very start here, first point, chosen people, verses 1 to 5, 1 Peter 1 to 5, chosen people. Uh, You can have a look for yourself, Uh, opening verses, Peter, he paints this beautiful picture, actually, of of the Trinity's involvement in your life. He says, you are elect, you're chosen. In other words, verse 2, your Heavenly Father, he thought about you before you were even born, and back then, at that point, by his Holy Spirit, at that moment, set you apart to follow Jesus. Now, this isn't your doing, not your doing, any more than a newborn child has a say on when he or she is conceived and enters the world. Right? I mean, we just celebrated the birth of Jack Jago, which, by the way, if he doesn't grow up to become a musician, I don't know, I mean, with that name, right? We just celebrated the birth of Jack Jago. He didn't have a say when he was going to come into the world. And so it is with our own rebirth. Just as a newborn child does not have a say, so too we. And that's a good thing, because our hearts are fickle. And my heart is fickle. We are inconsistent. But your salvation is not. Because, and this is rather mind-blowing, your salvation is not your own doing. Right? God does all the work. He gives you this gift of salvation. You're born again. You're a newborn, given a new life, not founded on wishful thinking, but on, on a hope that's living. Because your hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that your hope is as alive as our Lord Jesus is alive. And just like Christ rose from the dead into the presence of God the Father in heaven, receiving all that God had prepared for him, so too your hope comes with an inheritance. Yeah, it's a a hope with direction, with an end goal. Have a look at verse 4. We're told that you've been given new birth into living hope and, verse 4, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now here's what I want you to notice, though. This inheritance... It's kept in heaven for you. In verse 5, you're being guarded by God's power. Power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you catch that? Not only is God Himself holding on to your inheritance, salvation, but you also are being shielded by God's power. In other words, your inheritance is being kept safe for you, and you are being kept safe for your inheritance. What a powerful image. God the Father is holding firmly onto your inheritance with one hand and holding firmly onto you with the other, keeping both safe until Christ is revealed on the last day. There's nothing random about you. You're God's elect. There's nothing arbitrary about your existence. You've been chosen by God. There's nothing that can separate you from God's love and salvation. God Himself is shielding you for a greater purpose in the future. Have those, do you see, do you be, are you beginning to see what this means for us? At the very least, it means that we need to consider more carefully how God views us. Right? For example, over the last decade or so, plus or minus. Um, identity politics have really captured the heart of society. So that is people creating these sort of micro world views or political agendas based on very particular race or, 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 or social class or sexuality, etc. But what we see here is that our primary identity does not come from within but outside ourselves. It's ultimately an identity that's shaped by how God sees us. That is, we are his chosen people whom he has carefully selected, brought into relationship with himself. And this across all ethnicities, right, all social backgrounds, sexual orientations, religious upbringing, nationality, gender, or any other category that we might use to sort of define ourselves and and create pathways into this world for ourselves. We are supremely God's people, supremely chosen and elect. That's our identity. That is who we are. That's what Peter's doing here at the start of his letter. Like He actually wants you to wrestle with this truth, to, to grapple with it and, and, and let it sink in. And that's, why, that's what he's saying in the opening of verse 6. He says, you rejoice in this. In this, you rejoice in everything I've just said. But then at some point, we need to get out of our heads and really let this sink down into how we live out our lives, how it is that we continue to follow Jesus faithfully in this particular time, particular context that God's placed us in. And that's kind of where Peter goes next in Act 2. He puts his finger on what it looks like to live as exiles in this world. So number two, living in exile. This is verses 6 to 12, right? From verse 6, living in exile. Now let me ask, what would happen if you dropped this truth into the lap of the church of Pontius or Galatia or Bithynia? See, there is a sense in which everything i said up until now, it's really great news for us, but it certainly takes on an added dimension. when you consider what this means for those who are suffering under persecution? Because that's the pointy end for Peter in all of this, that life is hard. Life's hard. And when we suffer for the name of Christ, our tendency is to think, is God even here? Does He even care? About me. Can I put it to you that what God's wanting to do here tonight is to get you to feel the hope that his good news brings and to let that hope transform your present circumstances. See, if you know you're chosen by God, given new birth, shielded by the power of his Holy Spirit, then suffering is able to become a temporary period of refinement for what's to come. Look how Peter unpacks this from verse 6. He says, you rejoice in this, you rejoice, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold, though perishable as we find by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean that Christians don't feel the pain of grief or hardship? absolutely not but it does mean that the residue left behind by the fires of suffering is a faith that brings glory to God, why? well it's because it's a faith that stood the test of time it's a faith that's found to be the real deal so I remember catching up with an old college friend, this was years ago and he was also a pastor and early on in his marriage his, um, well, his wife just up and left him And as we sat in the upper room of this uh, local cafe of mine, I asked him, how have you managed this all? And he said, there are things we can only learn through suffering that doesn't make suffering good. And of course, we wouldn't choose to go through it. But having gone through it, he says, my relationship with God has grown and matured in ways it wouldn't have otherwise done. I've never forgotten that conversation. It's a glimpse into how we ourselves can devote this letter of Peter's. That is, because our identity and inheritance is secure in Christ, suffering, it can't take that away. Rather, if we're able to suffer well with an open heart, God can use even that, even this suffering, to refine our faith. Now true, most of us, though some, but most of us aren't facing physical persecution for our faith tonight. And so this is different to Peter's churches. But I think you'd agree that every setback for us, every grief, every unmet expectation is a temptation to pull away from Christ, isn't it? And so when we stick close to him, trusting Jesus, even in the pain and confusion, we're learning how to live as God's people in a world that's ultimately not our home. Or to put it in the words of Peter himself, verse 8, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving what? The goal of your faith. And what is the goal of our faith? The answer: the salvation of your souls. Salvation of your souls. All right, so let's recap. In Act 1, we saw how we're chosen people who, in Act 2, are living in exile. What's the context for our lives? That is, how how are we meant to approach our life as followers of Jesus? Well, this brings us to our final act tonight, between two worlds. In other words, we are chosen people living in exile between two worlds. Last point for tonight, between two worlds, from verse 13. Now, it is good and fine to say that we live as exiles through faith, but what does that look like practically? How are we meant to conduct ourselves while living between these two worlds, between heaven and earth, between the now and not yet? Well, once again, this is something that begins in the mind. Listen to Peter one last time tonight. Therefore, so here's, here's Peter's application. Therefore, verse 13, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. What does that even mean? Well, it's all about evaluating things correctly, seeing clearly, not having a mind that's spiritually numb with intoxicating influences. That's what we're meant to do with our mind, to sober it up. Why? So that you can set your hope completely. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Village, this is what it all amounts to. Here's Peter's first command. You might even say, "Here's, here's the first command we see in God's word this year. And it's this, hope fully. Fix your hope completely. Right? The first command in this letter is a command to hope. It's an experience of the soul. Peter's commanding us to experience hope. Hope in the grace that's on its way. See, the big idea is when Jesus comes back, he's bringing grace to God's people. Grace is on the way, so hope in it. Hope fully in God's saving grace. Isn't it interesting that only now we hear a command, only after Peter spends 12 verses celebrating all that God has done for us, right? like his sovereign action and election and the resurrection of Jesus and the causing of new births and the keeping of our inheritance and the preservation of the faith of believers and the providential working and suffering to refine us in the foreordaining, predicting work of the prophets, only now do we hear a command. And the first command is hope in grace. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's where I think this passage pushes us toward tonight two questions we can be asking ourselves on how it is we might be able to live out our faith as exiles. And the first question, quite naturally, quite obviously, is where, where are you placing your hope? What's your hope in? See, God's concern in this passage is that we don't become moderate hopers, that we aren't satisfied with half-hoping hearts but that rather we prepare our minds for action, engaging with the hope-producing truth of God's word, and guarding our minds from the hope-destroying influence of the world. Now, this, this, this verse here, by the way, it, it always reminds me of that classic quote from C.S. Lewis, and I actually don't have a slide for this. So you just, you're just going to have to listen, listen closely. C.S. Lewis, he says this classic quote, C.S. Lewis, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, says Lewis. So, where are you setting your hope? Honestly, how do your actions betray where your hope lies? You know, for example, when people wrong you, how do you you respond to that hurt? Is it with sort of rejection, pushing them away, Uh, maybe gossiping behind their back because your hope is actually set upon how others see you, how others treat you, how others view you? Or when you drop the ball, in, I mean, whether it's in, in, you make a mistake in life or at work or in a relationship, whatever it might be, how do you respond? Is it with crippling fear or anger because your hope is actually set upon your own achievements? Or then, even another way to look at it, do you think it's possible to only partially set your hope on Christ? Like, can you, can you have a bit of hope in Christ and then reserve a, sort of a little bit of hope? Over here, on the side, in something else. See, the, the point is with, with this passage, it's that when we lose sight of the hope that is to come, right, when we take our, 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 our gaze off of our future hope, then we end up living for whatever is right in front of us. We become defined by our immediate surroundings, which is why we need to ask ourselves this next question. That is... Do we recognize our fragility and vulnerability as exiles? Do we recognize our fragility and vulnerability as exiles? See, part of being alert and sober-minded is about being self-reflective, about being honest with where we find ourselves. It's about knowing what our struggles and weaknesses are and then putting up spiritual boundaries, as it were, so that we don't rush headlong into foolish situations that we know are going to be pulling us away from Jesus. Because knowing who you are is the best way to get to where Jesus wants to take us. It begins by knowing who we are. And so, on a day like today, where it's actually culturally acceptable to face yourself in the mirror and ask who you want to be this year? How many of your New Year's resolutions include habits or disciplines that will sober up your mind? I'm not opposed to you know, other resolutions like you know, exfoliate more or you know, grow a mullet like your pastor. But honestly, are we setting up resolutions today, this week, That will help strengthen your heart to keep following Jesus faithfully. See, for some it might actually be going sober, like literally doing away with those sorts of um, coping mechanisms that you know only end up leading you down dark paths. For others, this is, I know, a touchy one, hard to face, but maybe it is pulling back from that relationship you know probably isn't good for you, the one where you kind of always find yourself in compromised situations. Or then, more positively, maybe it's walking out today with our new Bible reading plan, letting the truth of God's Word rewire your identity. Or for some here, you know, it's, it's, just, it's time now for you to seek out an older brother or sister in the faith, ask them to catch up with you, read the Bible, pray, share your life, right? Or for you to be that older brother and sister, turn around and, and seek someone out younger in the faith in, in Village Church this year. Whatever it is, as exiles... We need to recognize that we're fragile and vulnerable in this world and that unless we are wisely navigating it together, what hope do we have? But then there's a second aspect to this, isn't there? You know, I always find it curious how it is God can command us to hope. Hope seems like such a sort of visceral, circumstantial feeling. How can you command hope? Then I guess in my own life, I remember New Year's Eve last year I'm not being silly, I don't mean yesterday I mean literally last year, 12 months ago I was standing on a rooftop some incredible friends having just eaten the best piece of my life we're in West End Uh, reflections of the fireworks are sort of lighting up the high-rise windows around me I just remember praying under my breath God, I'm not ready I don't think I can face this next year but then I also remember as the weeks went on. A few wise men and women here at Village Church just quietly speaking truth to my heart, quietly encouraging me in the Lord over this past year to keep following Jesus, to just put one foot in front of the other. And now exactly 12 months later, I look back, and of course, of course, of course, I see my faults and my shortcomings over a hard and tricky year, absolutely. But I also see God's infinite grace in my life, right, feeding me just enough hope day by day to make it through. And then near the end of the year, an outpouring the sending of so much family, so many old friends, some pretty exciting new ones too this year that have kept me marching forward step by step. And so then maybe that's you not ready to face this year, not wanting to step into 2023. But as a reminder, God does not give us a lifetime supply of grace and then send us out into the world. That is, if you're looking down the long, dark tunnel of another year and you're thinking to yourself, if this is how the year is going to be, I cannot possibly imagine sticking faithfully with Jesus. Well, no, you can't, actually. Nobody can imagine it. But the good news is God never asks you to. See, God's promise to us is not here's a lifetime supply of grace, now go faithfully. Rather, God gives us his grace. He upholds us in his presence one day at a time. One day at a time. Do you see this passage? It opens with the hope that comes from being chosen by God and it ends with the hope that comes from Christ himself being chosen for us. Because lest we forget Jesus himself was an exile, wasn't he? Left his home in heaven, came into the world to live as a foreigner, right? As an immigrant, live in a world that wasn't his home. He suffered greatly. He was rejected, was maligned, was beaten and mocked. And yet he was chosen by God. And so are you. In our life, it's actually patterned after Jesus' life. He carved a path from the outside to the inside. Yeah, from suffering to glory, from rejection of men to the right hand of God and friends, that's where you're going to if your hope is in the Lord Jesus. So it's a new year. It's a new day today. And I'd ask Village that this is where you'd be placing your hope this year, that we would hope in that, in the future glory that's to come. And the saving grace of Jesus now, that we would set our hope completely on the grace that is to come. Please allow me to pray for those things now and then we'll wrap up with a final song. Our Heavenly Father, how gracious you truly are to us because we are so inconsistent and our hearts are so fickle. I look at my own life and I see myself um, scattering my hope across. A multitude of things that are outside of you. And yet, Lord, only the creator of, of, of the heavens and the earth could be creative enough to find a way to rescue and redeem us from our inconsistency, from our sin, and to restore our brokenness. Not just ours, but, but that of the world. So Lord, I ask now as we start a new year together as a, as a church family, as a community that you'd be building us up in love, you'd be teaching us what it looks like to to encourage every member of the body, that together we'd be growing up into maturity, into Christ Jesus, who is the head of this church. Help us, Lord. Help us to not become or remain moderate hopers, half-hearted creatures, but rather help let this truth of your word seep deep into our heart that we can set our hope fully oh. on your gospel as we wait patiently for the return of your son Jesus. Oh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to call the band back up. We're going to sing one final song that I hope sort of encapsulates some of the uh, feeling and energy of the opening of Peter's letter. So, Village, why don't you stand and we'll sing one final song together.